And let's pray together. God, as we come to you this morning, we just want to present our lives, our hearts to you. As we think through this topic of money and wealth and possessions, Father, we ask that you might open up our eyes and our hearts so that we might understand truthfully what this whole thing is all about and that we might live in light of your word to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So last week in our community group, uh, we, we began uh, our evening by having people go around and introduce themselves and answer this question. We said, when you were growing up, what was the car that you always dreamed of owning? And it seemed like, I don't know, three, four people, the answer to that question was a 69 Mustang, which that's just a great car, isn't it? 69 Mustang. And, uh, but then when it came to my daughter Mia, and she was asked about her dream car, she's 14, she answered simply with the phrase, Big Red. Now, Big Red is uh, my father-in-law's 1982 Cadillac. And there it is in all of its glory. <laughs> Isn't that just a beautiful thing? You know? So my father-in-law, he received this from his mother. It was her car, and so he has maintained it meticulously. He loves this car. He babies this car. And I remember years ago, I was talking to him about this car, and he told me that he was going to get a, a custom license plate for the car with the, uh, with the Bible reference to Ecclesiastes 10.19 on it. And I was like, Ecclesiastes 10.19? I said, what's that? He said, well, go look it up. And so I was kind of imagining my father-in-law at the time was an elder in our church. And so I was thinking about, you know, all the, you know, kind of profound wisdom that uh, he might want to put on the back of his car. Ecclesiastes uh, 10.19 reads like this. Food is for laughter, wine makes life merry, but money answers everything. Now, maybe you're new to Christianity. You didn't know that was in the Bible. You're like, I'm not sure I believe this book, but maybe I do after all. I mean, this is, this is good stuff. But I, I think we, we look at, at this verse and, you know, the first time I looked at this, when my father-in-law, you know, pointed me to it, I, I was wondering what it was doing in the Bible. Because in many respects, it runs counter to so many other things in the Bible. The main witness of Jesus about money is not that it answers everything, Jesus reserves the answer to everything as God. Money is simply a tool to be used. It's not the answer to everything. And yet, uh, this is what Ecclesiastes 10, 19 uh, declares. And and we might be a little bit critical of Kohelet for uh, declaring that money is the answer to everything, except for a lot of us, I think, in many times in our life, maybe we felt that a little bit more money might be the answer to everything, don't you think? Remember, uh, years ago, it was a very famous uh, statement from uh, John D. Rockefeller, who was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. (laughs) And how many times have we thought that? We thought, man, if we just had a little bit more money, we could take the vacation, uh, we could pay off the debt, we could send the kids to college, we could eat out a little bit more often, we could get the new granite countertops for the kitchen, if we just had a little bit more. But you know, (laughs) 
The main word of Ecclesiastes about money is not that it's the answer to everything. In fact, Ecclesiastes declares to us, and we heard it read for us, that money more often than not can be a problem than it can be the solution to our problems. And so what's up with Ecclesiastes 10.19? Well, there's been some different opinions about this verse. Uh, One idea is, is that he's talking relative to food and wine. And so food is good, wine's good, but money is even more versatile than both food and wine because with money you can buy food and wine and a whole lot of other things, right? And so he could be talking about the versatility of money. But I think rather what's happening in this text is uh, the, the author is giving to us a particular perspective on wealth from an earlier stage in his life. And maybe there was a moment in his life, just like there's been moments in your life and my life, where he did think that money was the answer. But the whole message in the book about money is different. Instead, throughout the whole course of his life, we get a different word on money because we get the word on money that he gives to us at the long end of his experience. And this is important because this author almost certainly was incredibly wealthy. Now, some have identified the author of Ecclesiastes with King Solomon, but there are reasons in the book itself why it it probably isn't King Solomon. Maybe it's uh, some of his collected sayings by a different author, but what others have supposed is that this book is actually uh, an author who has taken on a mantle like King Solomon. And so he is also affluent, he has power in Israelite society, he's living during a period of of very strong affluence, And what we get is a window into what his experience with wealth really was. In other words, this was a man who got to the top, he finally got everything most of us wish we would have, and he gives his verdict on it. And uh, let me just ask you, if you've been here the last few weeks, what verdict do you think he renders over money? Hevel. It's vapor. My wife asked me this week what I was preaching. I just said, money is vapor. She said, well, we know that. (laughs) That's most of our experience with money, right? It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. But this is a man who actually achieved incredible wealth, incredible status, incredible possessions. And he looks back and he talks to us about what it all means at the end of the day. And this is incredibly, incredibly important for us. There was a study done on happiness years ago by a Harvard psychologist named Daniel Gilbert. He's one of the the chief voices on happiness in our culture. And one of the things that he does in his research on happiness and communicating it to people is he asks us to consider different future scenarios. And he does this because he says, this is what his claim is, and he says all the research indicates this, is that all of us are terrible predictors of our future happiness. And so there are things we think that if we just had X, we would be happy, but then we get X and we realize we're not happy. He said we're terrible predictors of our own future states, our own future happiness. And so he asks us to simulate uh, a couple different future experiences. And so he says, uh, imagine these two different scenarios. The first is you win the lottery. In this case, it's $314 million. And then contrast that with a different future scenario. You become a paraplegic. And so you lose the use of your legs. 
Now, he says that there's actually data on these two groups of people, the lottery winner as well as the paraplegic. And he asks his audience, which of these two groups do you think would be happier, the lottery winner or the paraplegic? What do you think, class? So you're wrong, actually. You were trying to be opposite because you thought that's what I was going to say. Actually, in the immediate aftermath of both of these events, obviously the lottery winner is happier. But he says research shows that at the end of a year, both people are equally as happy. And he says we're not good at predicting our future happiness. Uh, the tool that we use, our own imagination, is just not up to the task. And I don't think hardly any of us believe this. Most of us think, well, those people just don't know how to use money. If you had money, you'd be happy because you know how to use it, right? Well, you're wrong. So he says, your own, your own imagination is a terrible, you're terrible at predicting your own future happiness. He said, instead, he says, the best indicator of future happiness is to ask somebody who has been there. To ask somebody who has the experience you want to have what it's like. And this is the author of this book. He has had the experience of making a whole lot of money, of gaining a whole lot of status, of having a whole lot of pleasure. And he looks back at us and he shares with us wisdom from this experience. And I want to look at his wisdom about wealth underneath three headings. Uh, number one, I want us to consider what he says about our desire for money. Secondly, uh, we're going to see something about what he says about our disappointment with money and wealth. And then finally, he's going to share with us something about the life-giving use of wealth. And so let's look at these in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse uh, 10. And I want you to note what he says about the desire for wealth. Look at what he says in verse 10. He said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vapor. And then a little bit later, he puts a similar idea like this. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, you can turn over there, he says, this is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. So he's speaking here about somebody who lacks nothing of everything he wanted and desired. And yet he doesn't have the power to enjoy it. And then he says down in verse 7, look what he says. All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, I want to draw back from these verses and just highlight a few words. He talks here about desire for riches. And he talks about an appetite for wealth. And he talks about a love of money, a love of wealth. Now, I want to just ask you for a second. Do you ever find yourself desiring, loving, having an appetite for money? Anyone in the room? Or let's just put it like this. A lot of us, it's not that we have an appetite, a love, and a desire for money. It, it's more that we have an appetite or a love or a desire for the thing that our money is going to give us. And so a lot of us, we want security. 
And money affords us financial security, financial safety. It allows us to buy a safer car, a, a better home in a safer neighborhood with a better alarm system. Some of us, what we want most is pleasure in life. And our money allows us to eat out when we want. And it allows us to uh, go on the vacations that we want and to have the pleasures we want. Some of us, what we want most in life is status and recognition. And money affords us status and recognition because we can buy the car, we can wear the clothes, we can live in the neighborhood that all look impressive to people. And so a lot of us, the thing that we really desire and, ap- and have an appetite for is not so much money, it's what the money actually enables us to have. It's that thing other than money. And underneath it is a deep dissatisfaction that the corporate marketers continually play off in our culture. And it's this dissatisfaction with our own life that we just don't have enough. We are not safe enough. We're not happier enough. We, are not, uh, we don't have enough pleasure in our life. We just don't have enough and we're dissatisfied, and so we need more, and so we keep stuffing more and more and more. But notice what he says about desire for more and more stuff. Verse 10, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He says, actually, though you feed it with more and more, it satisfies less and less. You keep chasing after something, but it keeps running further and further away so that you never actually apprehend the happiness. And of course, the American economy is built entirely on this reality, isn't it? What is the engine that drives the American economy? It is your dissatisfaction with what you have. It is the lure that if you just had this car, or you got the iPhone 10, or you just were able to buy this new house, or get this new thing, then you would be happy. And that's what keeps driving the American economy. It is what the, G, the GM Motors Research Division once coined uh, the, the organized creation of dissatisfaction. And of course, what the corporate marketers are experts at doing is connecting a particular product with that thing that you actually want. And so, for example, maybe what you want is a healthy body. You want prowess or power, you want to be attractive. And so what do the corporate marketers do? Well, they associate the product they're selling with this, uh, this thing. And so for example, you've got LeBron James selling Sprite. Now, question class, what is it that being a professional basketball player, the most incredible athlete in the history of the world, have to do with drinking fizzy, high fructose corn syrup? <laughs> like, what's the connection? There is none. And yet we're making an association that if you have this product, you will finally get the good life, the thing you ultimately desire. And this is what continually drives us to keep pursuing and to keep working and getting that next thing. It's because corporate marketers are experts at this game. And it gets so much into the consciousness of most of us that we find ourselves actually believing that life does, at the end of the day, consist in the abundance of things we possess. You know, the ancients oftentimes identified one of the big problems of humanity as the problem of greed or avarice. And essentially what greed or avarice was, it was that thing that Jesus spoke against 
It was uh, that which Paul warned against. He talked about greed being idolatry. Uh, Pope Gregory the Great set it as one of the seven deadly sins, avarice. And avarice and greed was essentially having too strong of an attachment to stuff. And so the image that comes to mind is like the dragon sitting on his big hoard of gold, and he's not using any of it. He just wants more and more of it. But I think what our text is warning us against, what Jesus oftentimes warns us against, he does warn us against greed, but he also warns us against something else, and that's covetousness. It's this love, it's this appetite, it's this desire for more and more stuff. And the difference between these two things, covetousness and greed, is that greed, you want to hold all, you want to be completely attached to things, but in covetousness, you're kind of detached from things. You don't want to hold on to your stuff, you want to discard it and get a different stuff. And uh, one uh, theologian who, who wrote a little book, it was basically a theology of consumerism, put it like this. He said, most people are not overly attached to things, Uh, Most are not obsessed with hoarding riches. Indeed, the United States has the lowest savings rates of any wealthy country. We are the most indebted society in history. What characterizes consumer culture is not the attachment to things, but detachment. People do not hoard money, they spend it. They do not cling to things, they discard them and buy other things. And so he says this, our relationship with products tends to be short-lived. Rather than hoarding treasured objects, consumers are characterized by a constant dissatisfaction with material goods. This dissatisfaction is what produces the endless pursuit of satisfaction in the form of something new. Consumerism is not so much about having more of it as about having something else. And that's why it is not buying but shopping that is at the heart of consumer society. Now, I go through all of this simply to ask the question, do you identify anything in your heart of this appetite, this desire for more and more stuff that actually at the, at the end of the day is dissatisfying? Anyone in the house know what I'm talking about? I mean, friends, this is the air we breathe. This is the ocean we swim in. It is the consumer-oriented culture that we are a part of, and we are constantly bombarded with thousands and thousands of images every week of our life from TV, from internet, from ads, from billboards, from all manner of places that continually tell us again and again and again, if you want to be safe and if you want to be happy, then what you need are more products. And what the author of Ecclesiastes does is he exposes the fallacy of that thinking. He says those who love, those who have this appetite, those who need more and more stuff, he says will never be satisfied. And so this leads us from the desire for wealth to secondly the disappointment of wealth. Now, he points out a few different ways in which wealth is disappointing for us. Number one, of course, we mentioned it just now, because wealth ultimately, it's unsatisfying. It actually doesn't satiate what our heart really desires. It doesn't deliver the happiness. It doesn't deliver the security. And that's why we constantly need something new and something different. He says those who have wealth are not satisfied with wealth. 
And of course, this is the testimony of so many people in our culture and our society who ultimately have gained a great deal of wealth and possessions and status. They come back to us and they bear testimony. They say it didn't work. And so, for example, best-selling novelist Jack Higgins Uh, Some of you are familiar with him. Uh, He wrote a famous uh, novel called The Eagle Has Landed. It sold over 50 million copies. Uh, He's written 83 novels and uh, incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And he said this. He said, I wish I would have known then what I know now, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Boris Becker, a young tennis champ, after he won his third Grand Slam, he put it like this. He was asked, he said, what is your greatest challenge moving forward? And he said, my greatest challenge is to think of a reason not to kill myself. I remember reading an interview with the hip-hop artist Eminem a couple, about a decade ago, and he was being interviewed about this rags-to-riches story that he, he, he experienced, and, and he, he said this, he said, he, goes, he said, you know, I, I've always wished to finally make it big, to pull myself out of poverty, uh, to be famous, to be popular, to have all this money. And then he said this, you got to be careful for what you wish for. I always wished and hoped for this, but it's almost turning into more of a nightmare than a dream. Or Marie Antoinette, the famous, uh, what it was, queen or whatever in France, She famously said about her possessions and money and opulent living, quote, nothing tastes. And this is what Kohelet discovered. Nothing tastes. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Do you believe that? Really? All right. Well, he not only says that it's not satisfying, he actually goes on and he shows us that sometimes money creates more problems than it solves. And he highlights a couple problems in, 11, in verse 11 and 12. Look at what he says. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage them has their owner but to see them with his own eyes. And I think what he's talking about there is when you finally get the season tickets to the Lakers game, all you get are these people who want to be your friend so they can go to the game with you, or use the beach house, or the timeshare, or go to Hawaii. He said, when you increase in riches, it increases the number of moochers who surround you. I remember talking to a friend of mine who, the most wealthy person I ever met, I ever knew, and he said this, he said, the difficult thing about being rich is that you never know who your real friends are. But he goes on, he gives a, he not only says this, it created a problem, I don't know who my friends are, but notice what he says in verse 12, he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What is he talking about here? He's saying, along with great wealth comes great anxiety on how you're going to manage and maintain and prevent yourself from losing all that wealth, and it creates worry and you live life with your stomach in knots, you lose your appetite, you can't sleep. He says, this is the problem with money. And I think what he's pointing out, if you kind of like take together uh, all of these different sort of things that he's saying, it's unsatisfying, it it creates stress, it brings a bunch of moochers, you know, these hangers on. Is I think one of the things that he's revealing to us is he's telling us something that almost nobody in our culture is telling us. And it's this. 
He is telling us that our standard of living is not the same thing as our quality of life. He is teaching us here in no uncertain terms that our standard of living is not the same thing as our quality of life. Now, I, I know that, that almost nobody in our culture is telling us that. Almost everybody in our culture is telling us that the way you improve your quality of life, the way you get more happiness and security is to have more and more stuff. You need to increase your standard of living. But I think all of us knows by experience that this is just not true. There was a, a study done a while back that was uh, reported in the New York Times, and it revealed that the United States was number one on the list of standard of living. We have the highest standard of living of any country in the world, and yet we were number 23 when it came to quality of life, when it comes to our own happiness. Because standard of living is just not the same thing as quality of life. And all of us knows this by experience. I mean, just think for a moment, would you rather have a terrible, like a horrible marriage, but an awesome car, or a terrible, or a, a, just a horrible car, and uh, an awesome marriage. Some of you have tried this. <laughs> and you don't want to go home. You drive your nice car into the garage, and you don't want to walk into the house. And it's because you know and I know that standard of living is just not the same thing as a quality of life. And we have songs, you know, throughout our culture that captures this, you know. I remember that old song, you know, even though we ain't got money, I'm still in love with you. You know that one? Or what about Sonny and Cher? They say our love won't pay the rent. Let's all go. Come on. Before it's earned our money. Yeah. I got you, babe. Yes. But what is that saying? It's saying, look, there, what, what's, what brings richness and true fullness in life? are our relationships with people, our relationship with God. It is something other than more and more stuff. And what I'm trying to convince you is that the stuff that you continually pursue, that you think you need, that product you keep searching for on Amazon, and you keep like investigating and reading all the reviews about and thinking more and more about, that's not what you need to be safe and happy. He says, if that's what you're looking for from your riches, you're going to be incredibly disappointed because it's always over-promising and under-delivering. What it can't deliver is a genuine quality of life. And that's what he's telling us here. So he talks to us, number one, about our desire for wealth. He's exposing that. And then he talks to us about the disappointment of wealth. He's saying, look, don't you see what happens when you finally get the stuff your appetite is for and that you're hungering for and that the culture keeps telling you you need? He says, you finally get there. And he says, it just doesn't do it. But then he turns us from the disappointment of wealth to the life-giving use of wealth. And I want you to see what he says here. Uh, notice notice how, he, how he frames the issue in verse 13. I, I think what he's going to do here is he's going to put us on notice just how important it is to pay attention to what he says about the life-giving use of wealth. Look at what he says. He moves from these little proverbial sayings in verse 10 to 12 to a, a little antidote, a little scenario. And he says, this, there's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. How was it that the riches hurt him? Did it make him more self-absorbed? Did it just bring a bunch of moochers around him? 
Did it cause him to lose sleep at night and create more stress? We're not told. We only know that he kept wealth to his own hurt. But then those same riches that hurt him in the first place were lost in a bad venture. I wonder how many of you lost a lot of money in a bad venture at some time in your life or in 2008 when the stock market crashed. And he says, to make matters worth, he's the father of a son, but now he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again. Naked as he came, so shall he return. He shall take nothing for all of his toil that he may carry away in his hand. He says, this is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he come. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? He says, look. He says, you came into this world naked, you're going to die naked. Or put it like this, you know, back when I was a kid, how many of you guys played Monopoly growing up? You know, I was an awesome Monopoly player because I was full of covetousness and greed. (laughs) I was all about uh, gaining more property and building hotels. I was being prepared to be president. (laughs) But... But it was crazy, you know, Monopoly takes hours, right? Like it's the longest, it feels like it's the longest game in the world, but you know, you win, you know, you you take away all the properties, all of the money from your siblings, from your parents, from grandma or whatever, and you're fully rich at the end of it, and then what happens? It's over. And after the game is over, it all goes back in the box. (laughs) And this is life. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. And so the psalmist said, teach us to number our days. Life is short, you're gonna die, so use what you have well while you have it. You won't always. Steward it well, life is short. So how do we steward it well? What is the life-giving use of wealth? Well, he tells us in verse 18, he gives us one thing. He's basically gonna tell us to enjoy it in verse 18 to, down to verse 20. But then in chapter 11, he's gonna tell us to share it, to give it away. So he tells us to enjoy our wealth and to share our wealth. So notice first, enjoy our wealth, verse 18. He says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is this, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one has under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in all his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God has kept him occupied with the joy in his heart. Could you imagine living the kind of life where you're not like obsessed with stress and anxiety and worry and living in a depressed past, but actually you're so occupied with joy that you you just can't, like, you kind of forget the days. They go by so quickly because you're just so occupied in joy. Well, he tells us here's one of the keys to live into this kind of enjoyment, this kind of happy life. He says, receive what you have as a gift. He says that there. He says, it's the gift of God. Receive it with open hands and receive what you have as a gift. Be content with what you have and enjoy it. Now, the Bible is not against saving. There are exhortations in the Proverbs to save your money, to be like the ant, you know, that stores up for the winter. 
But the word on saving in the Bible is relatively small compared to its word on enjoyment of what we have and graciously and generously giving what we have. And I think that's because saving your wealth, investing your wealth is only a means to a bigger end. And the end is always actually so that you might use what you have in a way that is God-honoring and enjoyable for you and for the community that you're a part of and to share what you have. The point of life, some of you need to hear this, the point of your life is not to save more money. Some of you, you like, like you are a champion, like every time you can, you're saving money, you're squeezing everything out of it. I'm not against saving money. I realize we live in this crazy culture where people are just in debt. I'm not exhorting that. But I'm saying there is a place to just pause and enjoy what you have as a gift from God. And this is what he's saying. Your life is short. Use it while you can. And you know, he specifically identifies eating and drinking. And I think he does this because in the ancient Near East, as opposed to in our day, these were uniquely community-oriented. They were communal practices. You didn't eat and drink alone. When you had a feast, when you drank wine, you did it in community. And I think what he's calling us to is, a, is an enjoyment of our wealth in community. It's turning us away from our individualistic, self-centered little purchases for us and me and my, and it's in, inviting us to use our wealth in a way that fosters and forms and is invested in community. And this is Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is always going around eating and drinking with people. He's enjoying community. He's enjoying the good gifts of God in this way. Not always grasping, not always wanting more, not always dissatisfied. The alternative to dissatisfaction with what you have and always looking to the next thing is contentment with what you have. What you have is a gift. When you have a lot, that's a gift. When you have a little, that can be a gift too. I mean, there are the, usually in, in, our, in our family, it's the first half of the month when we have a lot, and then the second half of the month where we just have a little. You know, and we wind up, but, but you can have fun even when you have a little. And you can be content with whatever your allotment in your operating budget is for your family. And you can live within limitations and eat the last can of beans and prepare your food together and still have fun. And Paul said, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. The key is contentment. The richest man in the world is not the one who has the most, but it's the one who is content with the least. He needs the least, right? So he says, enjoy your wealth while you have a chance. But then he says in chapter 11, to give, generously give your wealth. And look at how he puts it. He draws upon this metaphor. I love this. We'll close with this text. Look at what he says. He says, cast your bread upon your, on the waters, for you will find it after many days. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. And what almost all the commentators say is that bread in the ancient world was a form of currency. In fact, in our own day, sometimes we even speak of money as our bread. You got some bread? And he's saying this. He's saying, generously share what you have. He's talking about philanthropy. He's talking about giving your money away. And then he says in verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. He says life is short. And so give your money away while you can. 
Jesus put it like this. He told this parable about uh, using unrighteous mammon to make friends in the present world who will receive you in the afterlife. And I think what he's saying is he's saying, like, use the time that you have right now to care for the poor, for those on the margins, to give your money away generously. Because those people, in the end, will graciously receive you at the end. This is what Jesus taught. He told us to give our money away, to share what we have. And it's just fascinating to me. These two principles that he says that give us life, enjoy your wealth and then generously give your wealth. You know, when, when, when those who have done all the work on happiness, they give us their results, always what they say is, there's at least two things that make people happy. One of them is friends, enjoying your stuff in community, but the second is philanthropy, it's giving. So invest your wealth in sharing with other people. Now, I know some of you might say, well, I'm not wealthy. Yes, you are. If you live in the United States in the 21st century and you are anywhere kind of in the surrounding community around Sierra Madre, you are probably in the middle to upper middle class, yeah? Some of you even like a little bit beyond that. Relative to the history of the world, relative to everyone else in the world, we are rich. So lower your standard of living and watch your quality of life improve. Lower your standard of living, give more money away, and find joy. He puts it like this. He says, cast your bread on the waters for you will find it after many days. And it's kind of this weird thing. You toss your bread out on the waves and then a little bit later it it comes back to you. And I think what he's saying is something that Jesus taught, which is it's more blessed to give than to receive because it's actually in the generous giving that you experience joy in life. Like it comes back to you. And you know, you talk to people who give, who are like big philanthropists and they'll say like, this does way more for me than it does for you. Like it's actually increasing my joy. It's making my life better. So he says, this is the life-giving use of wealth. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Enjoy your wealth. But then also generously give your wealth away. Look for places and people to invest your wealth in. Invest your wealth in the local church, in renovation projects. Invest your wealth in missions. (laughs) Invest your wealth. I mean, like, seriously. Somebody invested in this property 80 years ago. And you're receiving it, the benefit of that. And that's a gift because it provides a venue for the gospel to continue on in generation after generation. That's a good, wonderful, joyful thing. And use your money to care for the poor. Like find organizations, you know, uh, Compassion International where you can help lift young children out of poverty. Invest your, and you will find it comes back to you. Cast your bread on the water and you're gonna find it after several days. You never cast your bread on the water. You use your money to continually kind of like pad your own little life and your own little security and to make you feel better and, and more important than everyone else, you're gonna be miserable. And I think why he's exhorting us in this way of life is because this is the life we find in the very origin, the very source of all life, which is God. God is wealthy. God owns everything. 
You know Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us, who was incredibly rich, yet for our sakes, he took on poverty. He divested himself so that he might, through his poverty, allow us to share in his riches. Jesus sacrificed himself. He gave so that he might share with us who are poor and lift us up and so that he might create a new family, a new community with whom he can ultimately share meals and feasts for all of eternity. And he invites us to engage in that kind of way of life as we move forward into the future. And so where are you at on this this morning? What decision do you need to make about your own money? You know, what is it that God may be calling you to do? I would encourage you, it is really easy to hear a talk like this and then to walk out the door and go, yeah, that's right. But I would encourage you to go home, evaluate what you're doing with what you have. Your life is short. It's a vapor. Before you know it, it's going to be gone. At the end of your life, when you stand before Christ, are you able to faithfully give an account for what you've done with what God has entrusted you with? Are you going to look back on the use of your wealth and see all the memories that were created, all the joy that was created, all the community that was created through your generous investment? Are you going to look back on your life and merely see your individual privatized self that you lavished with things to make you feel better about yourself? when your security and your happiness can ultimately be found in God and God alone. And so let's find our security. Let's find our joy in God and then let's go out and be generous and liberal and joyful in the use of all God has given us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would search us and that you would know us. God, you know how easy it is for us to deceive ourselves. To think that we're generous. To think that we're content. To think that we're grateful. When what comes out of our mouth is oftentimes complaints, and criticism, and disappointment, because we've bought into a lie that we've been taught, that life consists in the abundance of things that we possess, when in fact it does not. Lord Jesus, make us content, make us satisfied in the fullness of your love. Make us happy and secure in the richness of your salvation, and then make us generous and joyful in the use of all that we have. Amen.